What's up, everybody? You're listening to Out of the Box Podcast with your host, D-Star. Enjoy the show! What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Ed Wall. How are you, D? So for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a director at the United Way of the 211 system. Uh, prior to that, I had a long career in government. I was uh, started in law enforcement as a uh, police officer in the city of Meriden, Connecticut, where I'm from. And uh, became a state trooper in New Hampshire. I was there for 10 years. My wife's from Wisconsin, so we moved to Wisconsin in 1999. Uh, and I joined the Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation. Went through the ranks there to special agent in charge. I was then asked by Governor Doyle to head state emergency management. I became the administrator in emergency management. And that eventually went back to the Division of Criminal Investigation as the administrator heading the agency. I was there until Governor Walker asked me to become Secretary of the Department of Corrections. I was there for three and a half years. That was a mixed bag of results um, with a a lot of uh, painful memories, but good memories also. And then I retired from state government and went on to be CEO and president of Netshield Corporation, New Hampshire, where I was asked to come in and run that company that was in trouble and get it positioned for an acquisition, which I did. Came back to Wisconsin. My wife and kids stayed here. I was flying back and forth on weekends. Then took over as the director of the housing authority in DeForest, then was asked to join United Way. First things first, you released a book. I did. It is very compelling. Mm -hmm. You are sort of a truth teller. I am. Just reading just like the first couple of chapters, I'm actually really hooked on this book. <laughs> so the book is titled Unethical. It is. Tell us a little bit about the book. The book for me was cathartic. Um, it was a chance to tell the story of what really happened during my uh, time at the Department of Corrections. The issues that arose with the juvenile correction system, uh, the fact that the governor and the attorney general, uh, A, had information about it before I even became secretary. And then once the allegations started coming out about the youth who were being abused, their position was to sweep it under the rug and make it disappear as opposed to trying to address the problem. Um, Ultimately, it led to, I resigned to go back to uh, the Department of Justice uh, and uh, the Attorney General there, who was trying to put his friend into my my position that was protected by state law, um, ended up terminating me. So I was fired, and then went through a series of appeals, which I lost based on a technicality. Uh, and I, but I was able to retire, so they didn't they I didn't lose my retirement. So I finally decided. I'd had enough with politics and government, and I retired. That's one of the quotes that I actually have written down here that really struck me. Do more than you're asked, better than the others, and faster than expected. Let's just dive right into it. Go for it. Governor Walker signs Act 10. Yes. I was heading the Division of Criminal Investigation at the time. All hell breaks loose at the Capitol. It did, and I was angry uh, because my agents were excluded from the, the rights that were given to the state troopers and all. And I, I went right across the street to the governor's chief of staff, uh, went in and told them that, you know, this is not good. This is, you're dividing law enforcement. You're creating this, this problem that doesn't need to be made. But Walker, anybody who knew him, shouldn't have been surprised by it back when he was the county executive of Milwaukee. He was constantly banging heads with the teachers' unions. 
So for him to take the action that he did through Act 10 didn't surprise me, but I didn't think he would go after all unions in the state, which was really, that was biting off an awful, an awful lot. So ironically, the guys that he tried to divide and conquer were the same people charged with his protection. Exactly. And including my, uh, my SWAT team. So my, uh, my tactical team was actually the ones who were assigned to do close protection for him. So here he had in the governor's office, my entire SWAT team unit protecting him after he had just told them that they lost all their rights to bargaining and advocating for themselves through their union. So it was an uncomfortable position. Take us to the mind state of that. For me, you know, I was in a, I was in a difficult position. So I work for the attorney general, who's an elected official, but I'm supposed to be neutral and detached. And that's the whole intention of the division of criminal investigation. You're neutral and detached from everything that goes on around you. There should be no political influence on what we do and how we do our job. The reality is there's always political influence, no matter you know, if, if you're going to work in law enforcement, I don't care if it's in a small town or a big city or for state government, the, you're always working for a politician because that's who ultimately will end up running, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a city manager, whatever. So the politics of it was difficult. Uh, when, the, when the protest started, we were, uh, we were brought in as, and I headed the, the state law enforcement response to it. And my staff, all of my agents were, uh, aside from the guys who were in their SWAT team uniforms for doing the protection of the governor, the rest were put undercover out into the crowds. Not to try and arrest anybody, but just to kind of monitor the tempo, make sure that nothing was going wrong. And it was, it was a very well-behaved group. We didn't, really, we didn't have the problems that people thought about. Yes, there were death threats on the governor, you're always going to get those, but they were trying to be anonymous or through email, et cetera. We had an entire staff that was tracking those down and going and addressing them with the people who made them. Some were arrested, um, but it was at the Capitol itself. It was relatively calm. There were a few times that were that put us on edge. I remember my office was in the, in the Department of Justice building looking out at the Capitol, and I recall looking across the street as a uh, U-Haul truck pulled up through the crowd and right up to the front steps of the Capitol on the Martin Luther King Drive side. From my experience, and you know, I ran the, the Homeland Security side of the house for Department of Justice, I ran emergency management, and I looked at that and thought, what's in that truck? Because here we had a building that looked like the U.S. Capitol with tens of thousands of people protesting in the street, and what would be a better display for a terrorist group than to detonate a large bomb there and use that for their purposes. So that was, that was a tense moment. We ended up finding the truck driver. We had all of our people in the crowd looking for him. And it was they were delivering sound equipment for the people who were going to be speaking to the protesters. So it didn't end up being anything. But those are the kinds of things in your mindset as you look around, you worry about who and what is a target. And you want to protect the protesters. You want to protect the Capitol. You want to protect the legislators. That was our job in law enforcement. Some of it got out of hand. You know, we had people breaking windows and they took over the Capitol and occupied the Capitol. I understood the, you know, the angst by the department administration. Absolutely. You were directed effective. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they were nervous that the building was going to be damaged and all. And I was back and forth 
appearing before judges as, they, as uh, the state was making arguments for closing the Capitol down and getting everyone out. But in reality, there was some damage. The bathrooms were overflowed and things like that, but it, it was nothing particularly major. So you actually ended up working for Scott Walker. I did. <laughs> After that, right? <laughs> yeah, re- reluctantly. Actually, when he first came in, I was asked if what I thought about the Department of Corrections. And Department of Division of Criminal Investigation was responsible for doing all the background investigations on the governor's appointees. So I had 30 agents, basically, just doing that. So they would send over a list of people they were looking at for cabinet appointments and administrator appointments. My agents would do the backgrounds investigations, and then they, I would go down and report the findings to the chief of staff. That's when they asked me if I you know, was interested in corrections, and I said no. I was the administrative division of criminal investigation, which is a permanent position, a permanent civil service position at an administrative level. There's only a couple of those in all state government, so it was supposed to be not politically affected. And if you left the position while you were on probation, which was the first two years, then they could, you didn't have restoration rights back to the position. So they, they mentioned it again months later. I said, sorry, I'm still on probation. And then lo and behold, when my probation was up, which was uh, roughly a year after they first talked to me, they were back at my office three days after my probation was up and said, we need you. We've got problems over there. The problems were self-inflicted uh, because of Act 10. They affected you know the largest group of uniformed officers in the state. Um, and oh, so that went to the COs also. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they all lost their bargaining rights. So you know the Department of Corrections, the the largest state agency with the largest budget, two point six five billion and ten thousand six hundred employees. And here for fifty five hundred uniformed officers, you took away their bargaining rights. And the, the Corrections Officers Union was very powerful. They threw a lot of weight around. Marty Beal was the, the Ask Me director at the time. Marty could be cantankerous. Uh, I dealt with Marty many times. I came out of the union side. I was on the executive board of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council. So I was familiar and somewhat sympathetic to the unions because I was in a union for a long time. Well, uh, you got 30-plus years in law enforcement. Right, right. I been in unions my entire career. Uh, once you go to management, though, you're out of union. So when I got promoted to special agent in charge, I was out of the union at that point. So now you're in the, the hot seat, the big seat. I was. What was the first thing on the agenda? When I became secretary? What was, yeah, what's the biggest fire that they wanted you to put out? Well, I wish they had told me about the juvenile corrections issue because they'd already known, but they didn't. Uh, They told me when I came in, the biggest thing I had to worry about immediately was elderly inmates. The fact that we had a a growing population of elderly inmates. Of course, the reason we had that growing population was because Walker wrote the law for truth and sentencing. So there was no more pressure release valve for Department of Corrections, where it used to be you did a certain percentage of your time, and then if you were good behavior, that was the incentive to behave while you're in prison. And the law took that away. Suddenly, our prison population starts to explode. And when I was there, we were well above our maximum amount of prisoners. We had hundreds of prisoners in the, in the county jails. Uh, just because we didn't have the room for them. So people sleeping on the floor. Yep. In what we called boats. They were, a, you know, kind of a foam rubber boat that they would sleep in on the floor. And that's in my mind, that's, that's not good. You, you just can't keep people 
you know, living like that in, relative, in very small quarters for the most part. So, you know, geriatric inmates was told that this is something you have to deal with. And it, and it was won. true. And it was true because I went and visited, you know, I visited every institution of the state relatively quickly. I heard a rumor that you actually spent the night in the hole. No, okay. no, I did not do that. That was Rick Ramish. Okay, that's Rick. Okay, yeah. no, I did not. I um, I thought about that, um, but at the same time, what bothered me was the way Rick did it. Is he went in kind of disguised, so even the staff didn't know who he was. I didn't want to have staff thinking that I was trying to do something, you know, to to get over on them. I wanted to come in, and you know, you come into those positions. Kind of idealistic. You look at it and say, "Okay, there's problems here. I'm going to try and affect them." You either have people like me that are, you know, have been in public service and government service their whole lives, who come in, look at a problem, and want to find a solution, or you have political appointees who are friends of a politician that will come in and try and um, affect the change that the political appointing person wants. I wasn't that person. So I came out of law enforcement. I think Walker expected that as a cop, I would want to really be, tough on, be tough on people, lock them all up. And, and admittedly, as a cop, you know, you dealt with people, you went through all the trouble, the case, the investigation, you knew the effects of the crime. And you, once you put people in prison, you didn't want to deal with it anymore. But once you're in the secretary of corrections role, it takes about three weeks before you realize that your challenge is in building more prisons because prisons and, and crime are not necessarily a um, warehousing issue, which is how Walker looked at it. It's a social issue. And once you start to understand that and once you see what the effects are in the reincarceration rate, which is recidivism, um, the, the problem really becomes quickly, what are we going to do to create a better product? Because if you go through the prison system and you're released to go back out and you don't have skills, you don't have your driver's license, you don't have a way to earn money, you're going to go right back to what you were doing before because you have no option. And my position was that we needed to do more to get job skills in these folks' hands so they could go out and earn an honest living and be a productive member of society. That wasn't the Walker administration's position. They... You know, I had spent uh, well over a million dollars in buying the portable labs that they use now for teaching people to do CNC machinery. And we moved those around the state to different prisons, and the inmates could sign up for that. They had to go through math testing in classes, and they would go in and get certified through the technological system. We had a 0% recidivism rate with those inmates because that should have told you something right there, right? Told me a lot. And, and I didn't, I always figured that it would work out. I mean, they were walking out of prison into 40 and $50 an hour jobs and nobody wants to go to prison when they can work for that much money. Hey, I mean, you think about like, that's life changing money to a person that's working for cents on the dollar. Right. So, so you come out and now you're able to, feed your family you're able to, if, if you don't have a family you're able to start one yep <laughs> really look 40, at buying a house months. oh yeah so it was it was a win-win although the walker people didn't look at it that way they looked at it as you're spending money to teach to give these guys skills 
and the people who have been law-abiding citizens are getting beat out of these jobs because these guys are coming out. I said, no, that's not the case because people aren't applying for them. People see too much of an an emphasis on getting their four-year bachelor's degree and not on the trades and not on doing this type of work. We identified this as a big weakness when we work with Department of Workforce Development, and they said there's a critical shortage right now of machine operators and CNC machine operators. So that's what we targeted at. And and as I said, the way to attack the the um, recidivism rate is let's work to identify what what skills and trades areas need people, and then let's train those people to those skills. And I wanted to take Lincoln Hills before I knew there were problems at Lincoln Hills and convert it into a technical college for inmates. So as you're coming into your last year, um, or if you wanted to go into a longer program, uh, we want to do electrical, plumbing, carpentry, all those skill sets that you could come out and go right to work making, making decent money. And, uh, and then take the kids from Lincoln Hills and put them back down here and reopen Ethan Allen. Since the majority of the kids up there were from the Milwaukee area, um, they closed down Ethan Allen to try and save money um, several years before. And the reason they went with Lincoln Hills was because there's, a, there's an archaic law on the books that required a youth prison north of a latitude-longitude line in Wisconsin so that kids from the North Country didn't get sent down below. This was written by legislators in the north part of the state. Um, that, that law never made sense to me. Ethan Allen was in decent shape before they closed it, but they did a lousy job of shutting it down. They had pipes burst. They had mold in the buildings. But it could have been remediated. And uh, I had an estimate done. would have been about $5 million to put it back online. And then we can move the kids closer to their families, which I think was part of the problem that we were seeing there. Um, and then take Lincoln Hill, since it's already set up like a school with barracks. Figure, okay, you're a minimum security inmate. You're getting out within a year or so. Let's get you trained so you can walk out the door and then do help with job placement. So that that was the objective. We never got to it, but that was the objective. What are some of the things that you wish you could have done? You know, it's a long list. And, you know, you kind of go through that checklist, especially after you leave and, and look back at what you did. And I was really happy that we got the mobile labs done. I was happy that we really focused on technical skill building for for the inmates. We also uh, set it up so that they get their driver's license while they were still in. So if they didn't have it, we really focused on getting GEDs and getting their high school diplomas, which was one of the biggest barriers coming out that they couldn't get jobs. So we put a lot of effort into that. I uh, I wish we had gotten the technical college done that you know tommy thompson and i talked about this and after i left tommy went talked about it freely and i talked to tommy about that that was like one of the things that he said he wanted to do yep yep and uh great guy shout out to tommy yep i i work with tommy very well and always admired him very nice guy um but i never never got that done the other thing i really wanted to do was get the employees raises so as you can see right now, the, the numbers are out on the, uh, the officer vacancies, which are huge. They were, the officer vacancies have been a problem with corrections for 15 years. Um, it became really bad after Act 10. And the way that 
corrections works is the lower in seniority you are, you're the first one to get what they call jammed, forced into overtime, which ended up creating a position where these new officers would come on and within six months they were leaving. They were leaving. Burnt out. We were losing at the time fifty percent of our officer class every year. So we only kept half of the people that we hired but we had a large number of vacancies. Now the maximum securities I saw in the paper the other day, 48.1% vacancy rate. And the reason it's in the paper now is the staff are getting mad because now we're getting up into the senior seniority area where even senior officers are getting jammed for overtime, where that was kind of the carrot at the end of the stick for corrections officers. If you hung in there long enough, you would get enough seniority that you wouldn't get jammed. And then you could, you could take whatever time overtime you wanted. Now it's not, and so now the people are going to the press to say this is what's happening. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of inmates that don't behave well uh, within prison, but then again, they don't have an incentive to anymore with the truth in sentencing. And there was a sharp escalation in disobedience and acting out with inmates after um, truth in sentencing came in. And it's hard to tell people, come work for... an hour and have somebody throw urine and feces on you. So why would you do that when you go to quick trip, you know, and get a job with, with no, with benefits and 20 bucks. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it, it was a self licking ice cream cone is how I always refer to it is we, you know, the legislature didn't want to give money to give them a raise yet. They would complain when our overtime was roughly 65 million a year. Um, But they figured by holding, by not creating a pay raise that would attract quality staff, they could save money because they didn't have to pay benefits. They could just pay overtime, which is a very short-sighted way to look at it. So, um, you know, while I was there, uh, I saw the effect of that on people. I saw people, divorces were very high. I had five officers commit suicide while I was secretary. These are the kinds of things that you look at and say, how do we impact that? And the problem was that corrections was never treated as a professional career for people who, you know, who were interested in doing law enforcement type work. And that stigma carried over to law enforcement who always looked at corrections as, oh, those guys couldn't get a job as a cop. No, that's not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, a lot of corrections guys left corrections to go become police officers. But some people have a different mindset about who they want to work with and how. And I, and I dare say corrections officers have a bigger impact on society than a police officer, you know, working alone on a squad would. You know, how they treat those inmates while they're in there has a lot to do with how those inmates act once they come out. So, um, but as far as things I regret, I, I wish I had been able to get pay raises and get the, the employment situation set, but it's didn't happen. It's probably not going to happen. Um, the legislature just doesn't want to talk about corrections. They do what they have to after they're forced to the edge of the cliff. And I told the governor, I said, the problem here is nobody's going to do anything until somebody gets killed. And then when an officer gets killed or dies you know, on the job, there'll be a brief reaction where they'll throw something at it. But the truth of the matter is that's not a fix. That's a Band-Aid. So that's probably my biggest regret is that I couldn't get that part of it fixed on the officer side and on the inmate side. 
the the tools for creating better programs were there, but the legislature didn't want to invest in them. So what would you say that the DOC is doing right these days? You know, I'm not involved with the DOC. I know the secretary, Kevin Carr, I've known Kevin for 20 plus years. I think that addressing issues as they arise is important. Lincoln Hills. But don't you think that that's a little reactive? It is. But in corrections work, you're always leaning so far forward on the reactive foot. It's hard to get you know, yourself to be proactive on other parts because the reactive side is like machine gun fire. So there's always incoming, you know, with one problem or the other. So I think that from their standpoint, the juvenile corrections issue in Lincoln Hills is still going on. And I left seven years ago. And as I told Walker and his folks, when they kept basically saying, make this go away, I said, this isn't going away. You don't understand. You're not looking far enough out to understand the impacts of this. So for the people that don't know what the problems are when it comes to Lincoln Hills, can you kind of outline? Sure. Yeah. They, there was an issue up there where there were allegations that kids were getting hurt by officers. As soon as I heard those allegations, I went right down and briefed the governor's office and said, hey, heads up, this is what's going on. This is what I recommend. I want to bring DCI in right away, get it out of our hands, because people are going to say that we covered it up. And there were allegations that some of the officers were running fight clubs out of sight of the cameras. They were rewarding the kids with candy bars. It was horrendous. Um, It was just terrible. And it needed to be taken seriously. It needed to be thoroughly investigated, and people needed to be charged. And that's the way I looked at it. And if we had staff there that, that broke the law, they needed to be held accountable. And the initial reaction from the governor's office was, well, okay, have DCI look at it, but don't let it get out in the press and don't, don't do say it. anything. Yeah, don't do anything. Right. Yeah, okay. Keep whitewashing it. And uh, I came back and we had recommendations on staff based on the investigation. There were people I, I wanted to terminate. And then they kind of went completely the opposite way and basically wanted to just terminate everybody. And I said, yeah, that's... That's not possible. And the Department of Administration attorneys backed me up and said, no, you just can't go in and start firing people. They have rights to, you know, to their position. They have to go through a process. There has to be an investigation. And so they reluctantly, you know, had to stand back on their back feet. And that's, I think that's when the Walker administration started to look at me as not friendly because they they wanted somebody to argue their point and just go in and slash and burn. And being a cop and being a lifetime public servant, I said, you can't do that. There's people who've got rights here. Whether you like to hear it or not, people have got rights. Just as the inmates and the kids have got rights, the officers have rights. And there were a lot of allegations flying. Some of them were baseless. Some of them were right on target. So we needed to let those investigations play out. And the problem was that when the Department of Justice got involved in my old agency, the DCI, they didn't take it serious enough. And I believe, I can't prove it, that they were getting instruction from the governor's office, slow walk this. Don't, because they had an election coming up for the governor and the attorney general in a year and a half. And they wanted to make sure that this wasn't going to be a stain. So DCI put one agent on the investigation part-time. That's a ridiculous commitment of almost no resources for a situation that could be explosive. As you read in the book, it became explosive. And, uh, and there was a, a concerted effort to try and keep that information out of the press. 
And I think that they kind of did a good job of keeping it out and downplaying it. To a point, but then it took off and it was a wildfire, as I told them that it would be. And that's why I encouraged them the moment that I got the information and briefed them. I said, our response needs to be complete and it needs to be overwhelming. We cannot short stroke this. I said, we need to go in and say, we have these problems. We are putting in cameras. We are doing this. We're sending people out to be trained and we have to treat this, you know, just as aggressively as we can. The problem I didn't know about, and I didn't find out until shortly before I left was the Walker administration was warned about this by a judge two months before I came on the job. And what they were afraid of was that this information would become public and that they didn't treat it seriously three and a half years earlier when a judge warned them about it. So the first time I saw the fact that the judge had warned them was when I saw it in the paper. I'd never, and I called the governor's office. And at that point I was getting ready to resign anyway and said, what the heck's going on? And why am I hearing about this now? You didn't tell me anything about this when I came on. And they said, we forgot about it. Well, Ed, I really appreciate you coming to the platform. My pleasure, D. Good to see you. I'm D Star. Until next time, guys. Thank you for listening to Out of the Box Podcast, an inspiring show advocating for our current and former inmates and their families in Wisconsin. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Click our affiliate link or Buzzsprout for all your podcast hosting needs. You can also support the show by clicking our support link in the description.